Hi, welcome to New Hope Community Church Online. The sermon you are about to hear was originally given by Pastor Chuck Wilson. New Hope Community Church, to know, to live, and to share Jesus Christ. The title for today is Laying the Foundation for Revival. 1 Kings 18, 30-36. And as you know, this is Palm Sunday. I brought one up front here. On the way out, you can get one. I don't have them up before because they turn into swords and everybody fights. And you know what happens after that. Uh, eyes poked out. All that stuff. But anyway, the pod shop donates palms to us every Palm Sunday. So if you're ever in the palm shop, pod shop, make sure you say thank you to them for the, the palms. But we're going to be giving these out on the way out. But it's really perfect timing. Palm Sunday landing on this passage. It never fails. There's always some great connection. And we see it again. We see a prophetic picture in 1 Kings 18 that ties to Palm Sunday. Just as the triumphal entry prepared for Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That's what it led to a few days later, right? Good Friday. We will see that Elijah who is a type of Jesus Christ, we've talked about especially his prophetic ministry, we're going to see Elijah prepare for the prophetic sacrifice on Mount Carmel, which we will see is very closely connected to Good Friday. All right, Elijah's prep on Mount Carmel for the sacrifice also prepares Israel for revival. He's preparing Israel for a revival, and we will connect some very interesting dots to the United States today in a little bit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the worship. We thank you for this awesome Palm Sunday. We thank you for your word and the power of your word. And pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word and and cut to our hearts like a knife. and, And move us forward spiritually. And bring us closely closer to you because of this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's pick up the passage here. I'll hold my palm right there. Pick up the passage here with verse 30, 1 Kings 18.30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones... He built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar even, and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Wow, I can't wait for this one. The altar was where the animals were sacrificed for sin. That's where they're sacrificed for sin. The altar is an Old Testament picture of the New Testament cross. It's a picture of the cross. The animals were sacrificed on the altar. The ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, was sacrificed on the cross. He fulfilled all the prophetic pictures of those sacrifices. And just as those people in the Old Testament, they would 
symbolically place their sins on that, that sacrifice. And they would put their faith in what the sacrifice was accomplishing for them. That's what they did. But that sacrifice, every sacrifice they offered in the Old Testament was looking forward to Jesus Christ. And just as they put their sacrifice in what he did, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. The ultimate sacrifice, what he did for us. All of them, without really fully understanding, were putting their faith in Jesus Christ. The prophets were intently trying to figure it out. You know, the prophecies about it. We're going to look a little bit more about that later. But they, they were really putting their faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what they were doing. By faith, by doing these sacrifices, obeying God by faith, that's what they were doing. And that's why we put our faith in the ultimate sacrifice. Now, let's look at verse 30 here. Read it again. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah called the people back to the broken down altar of Jehovah. Now, they really shouldn't have been sacrificing there on Mount Carmel, should they have? Where should they have been sacrificing? Jerusalem. That was the only place now allowed, now that the temple was built, that was the only place they were allowed to sacrifice the sacrifices. The high priest had to do it in in the temple. They were supposed to be in Jerusalem. But the nation had become divided. The northern ten tribes, which were known as Israel, were in the north. And the southern tribes, the two tribes in the south, were known as Judah. And they were completely divided. And they had become hostile over time. And even many times in open warfare. Many wars between these two nations. So it was divided. And so some people would cross the border from the north into the south to sacrifice in the temple. They still would, still would do it. But it was very risky. Think, think North and South Korea crossing the border. That's what it was like at this time. So over time the most... The most faithful people in Israel, the ones that didn't want a chance crossing the border, they would start to use altars in key places. Even though they weren't supposed to, it was the only option they had left. And so they had these places, they would, key places like Mount Carmel, where they would still offer sacrifices to the one true God, Jehovah. That's why Elijah picked this spot. It was well known. But even these quasi-altars, even these quasi-altars were now neglected and in disrepair. Another step in the apostasy, right? Even these altars were no longer used. It reminds me of a lot of you came from mainline Protestant denominations. And these mainline Protestant denominations that used to be on fire for God have now, have, are now in steep decline. They're hemorrhaging. They were once powerful witnesses for Jesus Christ. They were used to evangelize this entire country at one time. But over time... They slipped away from God's word, first of all. The first step, they stepped away, slipped away from God's word, just like the people weren't in Jerusalem there. And now they no longer preach the cross. Away from the word, and now they no longer preach the cross, which is exactly what happened to the people in Israel. They no longer went to the temple, and then the altars were not repaired anymore. So Elijah takes the first step to revival, and he calls the people back to the altar. And this is a lesson for us. If we're going to see revival in the United States, we have to refocus on the cross. We have to get back to the cross, repair the cross, refocus on the cross. Then we get to verses 31 and 32. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. So he takes 
After calling the people back to the altar, he repairs the altar, and then he digs a trench. Wait till we see what that's all for, right? You'll see why he digs a trench a little later. And and to repair the altar, he took 12 stones. Now, even though he's in the northern kingdom where there's 10, 10 tribes still, he still includes the two tribes of Judah. He still includes them. He still takes all 12 stones, even though he's part of the 10, and the other two are a separate country at this point. He still, God still saw them as one nation. Even though they were divided, he still saw them as one nation, just like the true church of Jesus Christ today. There are many different denominations. If we buy asked here, we'd probably come up with 50 different denominations. There's many that you came from. There's many different denominations scattered over the entire world comprised uh, of, of people up over the whole world, often divided by not just geography, but divided by cultures, divided by race many times, which isn't a good thing, but it's a, it's a fact, divided by race. But God doesn't see that. He sees one true church. He sees one true church comprised of all true believers. When he looks at it, he sees all, all true believers. Anyone who is born again. Jesus said, you must be born again. And there, we are unified. Everybody who is born again, who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. Those of us who have done that, we are unified by the altar. We are unified by the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ, are you part of that one true church? And I don't care what group it is, the, the key is faith alone in Christ alone, by faith. And I just want to ask people, I'll ask everybody here, this is what I ask people all the time to figure out, are they part of the one true church or not? I say, if you were to die, this, this question has never failed me, ask people it. If you were to die and stand before God today, and standing before God, he would, and it's not St. Peter at the gate, <laughs> it's God, right? All right? So you ask, and God were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What would you say? When I ask that question, I get a lot of different answers. I get, well, I've been baptized. I went to church. I'm a good person. I never killed anybody. I try to be good. I went to confirmation. Get all kinds of answers, but there's only one answer. One answer that makes us a true Christian, born again, saved by God's grace, and that is because I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And if we answer that any other way except by I put my faith in Jesus Christ, we are not part of the one true church. And that gets to it. And if you weren't sure how to answer that, that's okay. I gotta, I'm gotta. i going to end with it, so hang on. You're going to get a chance to do that later. I always end with how to put our faith in Christ and, and to, to join the one true church. But that, that's the question. Anything except because I put my faith in Jesus Christ shows that we haven't stepped into the one true church, but you can do that today. You can become part of the, the family of God, part of the body of Christ today. Hang on. Put on your seatbelt. Hang on. We're going to get there, okay? Uh, so, 12 stones. 
Twelve stones he takes. Not just any old stones. He had to be very careful what stones he used. In fact, in Exodus 20, he's following God's word every step of the way. Exodus 20, 25 to 26, talks about what stones he had to use. And this is what the command was in Exodus 24. Exodus 20, 24, make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on your burnt off. On it, your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. Can't dress them. Uncut stones. They just got to be just like you found them. That, that, that rugged stone, that's, that's all you can... It can't be man-made. There can be no human effort involved in this altar. Nothing. Why? Because we can't approach God on the basis of human works. It's only by faith in his sacrifice that God provides. No human works. Remember Cain and Abel. Look what happened with Cain and Abel. God rejected Cain's sacrifice because he brought... What he grew by the sweat of his brow. It was human effort. He said, I won't re- I, he rejected Cain's sacrifice, but he accepted Abel's sacrifice of a lamb. A lamb. That if you are here and you have never put your faith in Christ yet, you can do that today. I pray to God you'll do it today. But if you want to be justified, if you want to be saved, if you want to be justified in God's sight, just as if I never sinned, you must come with empty hands. You must come to the cross with empty hands as a beggar by putting your faith in what is on the cross, by putting your faith on what is on the altar. It's all by faith. There's nothing we can do. And there's a lesson here for the church in the United States today, too. We must, we must learn a lesson from this, too. We have to return to the altar. We have to repair the cross of Jesus Christ. We must once again preach the simple cross of Christ. Not the gold cross. You know, we all wear these necklaces and, you know, silver and gold crosses. No, no. It's okay to wear those, but that's not what we got to get back to. We have to get back to the old rugged cross. Like we once preached. But I, it all, I remember when it changed. It was in the 1980s. 1980s. I was just starting in ministry and there was a big movement. It was called marketing the church. And they said, if we're going to really keep Christianity going in America, we got to market the church. And I remember there was all these conferences and books written and newsletters and training for pastors. And and they just pushed marketing the church. And we bought it. Everybody bought it. It it had to be, you had to make the gospel more attractive. Make it slick and attractive. Use marketing, business techniques. Works in business, use it in the church. And, and worldly methods. You had to use worldly methods. Whatever worked in, in the world, you had to use that in the church. And, and, and everybody, you know, we were taught, don't upset people with the word of God. Don't upset them. Be, you don't want to offend their worldly thinker, thinking. You have to be seeker sensitive. Seeker sensitive. Not Holy Spirit sensitive. Seeker sensitive. And, the result, and the church, the American church bought it, hook, line, and sinker. The result is now we have a worldly church. A worldly church. And there's no fire. There's no power. Because there's no cross. And the result has been 
unbelievable. In fact, there's an article I uh, just saw this week in the news. It was by um, Michael Knowles. It says, God help us, atheism has become the largest religion in the U.S. Listen to this. For the first time in history, atheists constitute the largest religious group in America. According to the General Social Survey, the number of Americans who have no religion now account for 23.1% of the population just barely edging out Catholics and evangelicals as the nation's dominant faith. Mainline Protestants have suffered the greatest collapse, now comprising just 10% of the U.S. population. Wow. He says, as religiosity has declined, social ills have abounded. You could do an easy study on this. Nearly one in five American adults suffers from anxiety disorders, which now constitute the most common mental illness in the country. The problem is particularly acute among younger Americans, teenagers, depression is huge, suicide rates are huge. Social scientists have long since established the link between religiosity and life satisfaction. And he goes on to give all kinds of, of statistics on that. That, you know, listen, this... This is the church's fault. This is the church's fault. We have, there's no cross and no power. We have to return and remember what Paul said in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The church... The one cure. We have the one cure. We have the one solution. We have the one hope. We must preach the cross. The cross. No matter how foolish it looks to the rest of the world, we must preach the cross. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is foolishness to the world. But to us, it is the power of God. We have to return, no matter how foolish it looks. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. In 1 Corinthians, a couple verses down, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, Paul said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not wise. We're not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. On God's power. We must preach the cross. We must share the cross. We must live out the cross. That's it. Jesus preached the cross. He died on the cross. He calls us to carry our cross. Back to Elijah. Back to Elijah. First Kings 18, verse 33. We're going to see more with this. In verse 33 it says... He, he arranged the wood and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, well, I'll stop right there. I'll come back to that, the water part in a minute. Cut the bull in, into pieces and he laid it on the wood. He, he cut the, the bull up. He cut up the bull. Cutting up a bull 
or a cow or a sheep or any whatever you're cutting up, it's bloody business. A lot of times we read this word, crucifixion, cutting up the cow, cutting up the bull, just kind of blip over. Listen, it's bloody business. Bloody business. I know on the farm. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, I was about five years old, and I remember we had, we used to do this a lot, but I just, one time I really remember it was a big event. I don't know what happened, but that day the whole neighborhood came over, all the neighbors, all the farmers came over, and my dad, they put a cow to sleep. Uh, we don't go any, into details there. They put him to sleep for good. And they, and they, I remember they took him and, and the cow and they had a tractor bucket and they lifted it up and they had this cow hanging upside down and they all just went at it. It was like one of these Amish, you know, butchering things. You know, they, everybody's cutting it and butchering it and everything. And the kids were all watching this, you know, and, and they kept us occupied. They want to keep us out of the way. So they, they took the head, they cut off the head and they gave that to us. And I'll never forget this. The big cow's head sitting there and all the kids are around playing with it. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail what, what we did, but let me just say that after what we did, uh, pithing frogs in middle school was no big deal. Let me just say that. Let me just say that. Uh, it was no big deal. Cutting up that cow was bloody business. Bloody business. Just like the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was a bloody business. Most of you wouldn't even want to see what I saw. And you wouldn't want to see the crucifixion. It was a bloody business. And Elijah's system followed very closely Leviticus 1. In Leviticus 1, verses 3 to 9, listen to what it says here. Very closely. This is why he's doing it this way. Uh, once again, Leviticus verse, chapter 1, verse 3. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect, he must present it at the entrance of the tent of the meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. He is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces the sons of Aaron, the priests, are to put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the burning wood that is on the altar. He is to wash the inner parts and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord." This, whatever Elijah is doing on the altar, he's following this very, very closely. He's following this closely. And it's a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Right away, it says, a male without defect. What was Jesus? Without sin. The Son of God without sin. That's what, why it can be a defect. Jesus was sinless. He was sinless. And then it had to be skin. Some of your versions might say flay. To flay something means to, to peel the skin off or to beat and whip it. Or both, beat and whip it until the skin is peeled off. That's what it means to flay something. That's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. He was flayed. He was beaten. The historians tell us with the number of beating, the number of whips that he took from the Roman whips, that they, you would have been able to reach through his back and touch his internal organs. Historical fact. He was flayed. And also, they had to lay their hands on the head of the sacrifice. Why? Because they were placing, symbolically placing our sin on that animal. 
symbolically looking forward to when Jesus was going to take the sin. Looking forward to that, but laying the hands on. And they didn't get into other parts you see in the Bible. While your hands are on that head, they would cut its throat. And you're holding the head while it's bleeding out, dying. I've done that before. It's not a pretty thing. It's horrible. But that's what they did. They were regularly reminded there's a cost. There's a consequence for sin. And there's only one solution, blood. Blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and they did that, it says here in, first, in Leviticus 1, why? To make atonement. To make us, remember I talked about it before, at one minute. It's three, you know, we, they, they invented a new word to, to try to come up with this picture. At one with God again, at one minute. That's what had to happen. The sacrifice had to happen to make us at one with God because we were separated because of sin. Romans 3.23, we talked about that before. God presented him as a sacrifice. I'm sorry, 3.25. 3.25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. By putting our faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, we can become one with God again. Back to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18, verse 33. We get to the water part now, where he says, He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to him, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. What's three times four? Twelve again. There's a reason. There's always a reason for the number. That's 12 again, 12 stones, 12 times you pour the water, 12 tribes. Okay, it's all there. But he soaks it with water. And once again, this is the type of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's sacrifice will wash us clean. Remember when he was speared, what happened? Water and blood flowed down his side. Flowed down his side. The blood paid for our sin. The water washed us clean. But Elijah also practically wants to show them he doesn't want to leave any doubt that this is a miracle there's no secret sparkies hiding like the prophets of Baal tried to do all the time and it's ironic isn't it that even though there's a severe drought these people are dying of thirst literally dying of thirst but here he is just throwing water away right he's probably used up most of the think about all the water he used here it's probably most of the water that they had for drinking water for the big mob that was there the multitude of people that were there and the, the few horses that they had left this is all the water they had left And he's pouring it out on this altar. But Elijah knew that they were all going to have to take a boat home. Wait till we get to that part. He knew they were all going to be taking boat boat rides to get home. There's going to be so much water in a short time. Uh, Then in verse 36, here we go. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet of Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. At the time of the evening sacrifice. Where is that happening? Jerusalem. They're up in the northern tribes, but down in the south, in the temple, at that very moment, they were sacrificing the evening sacrifice. It was three hours before sunset when when the animal was actually killed. And that is the same exact time that Jesus was crucified 
on the cross. That's the same exact time that he actually died on that cross. And this sacrifice by Elijah is a prophetic picture of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. And it's no accident, just to show you even more, it's no accident that in Luke 9, 30 to, 30, uh, 30 to 31, in Luke 9, 30 to 31, that look who is actually on another mountain with Jesus discussing his crucifixion. Luke 9, 30, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus they spoke about his departure, which was about to be bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They were talking about the crucifixion. Moses and Elijah were there with Jesus, talking with him up on top of another mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, and they were talking about the crucifixion. Elijah, this sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, it's all connected prophetically. Now let's connect a few more dots, a few more dots. Elijah's Preparation of the altar is just like Palm Sunday and the preparation of Palm Sunday. Both are preparing for Good Friday. Both are preparing for the cross, the ultimate sacrifice. And Elijah's repair of the altar, which is a picture of the cross, is also a picture of what must happen if we are to see a revival in the United States today. We all want to see a revival. We're praying for it. We're hoping for it. I think we're seeing the cracks starting to happen. It's starting to happen. But before it can happen in the United States today, we must return to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's our only hope. There will be no spiritual awakening in this country because of politics. There will be no spiritual awakening because of the economy. The spiritual awakening can only come through Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ. But it must start in the church. The spiritual awakening cannot begin to happen in our country until there is a revival in the church. And the revival can only happen if we have a revival of returning to the cross. We must preach the cross. There is no hope for this country until we preach the cross. Until we live out the cross, there's no hope. The revival must start in the church and then it spreads into the country as a spiritual awakening. Study all the spiritual great awakenings. It started, the revival started in the church and then it moved to the culture and to the country as a spiritual awakening. But there can be no revival without the cross of Jesus Christ. You hear all these revivals everywhere. Oh, here and there. And everybody goes down and they see all these crazy things happening. We're having a revival. And I'm like, study. I'm like, I don't see the word. I don't hear the cross. And they don't last. It has to be based on the word of God. And it has to be focused on the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. No other signs and happenings and, and, and exciting you know, people fainting and blah, blah, blah. And none of it. It's got to be the cross. I'm not saying those stuff is bad. But it has to be the word. And it has to be the cross. It has to be the foundation. That's the only true revival that will last. It has to start in the church and it has to be revival and it's going to take each one of us willing to carry our cross. It's not just preaching the cross, but we have to be willing to carry our cross. Jesus made that very clear in Mark, in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35 when he said, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I'm going to read that one again. He must deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. We must carry our cross. And that means, I was really thinking about it a lot this week, that means the, the last place that our flesh wants to go. Right? The last place, whether it's holiness or whether it's missions or witnessing to some wacko person we can't stand or whatever, going into a dangerous area, whatever it is, it's the last place our flesh wants to go. That's what it means to carry a cross, denying ourselves, carrying our cross, being willing to go wherever God sends us. And when we finally get there, when we finally say, okay, God, I'll do it, it's the very place we will find God's calling and purpose on our life. It's, it's the very place. We see many people around the world that are carrying their cross. If you read the news, I don't know if you're getting that CBN news thing I send out. Get it. Read it. People, because you're not going to see it on the regular media, unfortunately. But, but there, people are carrying their cross all over the world. Christians are being massacred in Nigeria by the Muslims. They're being uh, attacked in India by the Hindus. They are being, uh, in China, the communists are bulldozing churches and arresting Christians by the thousands in, in, in China. They're carrying their cross. We're seeing it all over the place. And we're going to see the same thing in the United States. It's, it's the, the, you're seeing the, the birth pains already. We're going to see it. Jesus said you would be hated on, in all nations because of me. It's going to be here too. It's already being set up. Half the country already hates Christians very much. They hate them. There's the surveys that show that. They hate us. You know why they hate us though? It's not politics. It's not even trying to save babies. It's not that. They hate us because they hate the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the bottom line. The bottom line. Philippians 3, 18 and 19 says it. It lays it out why people hate Christians. Philippians 3, 18. For as I have often told you before and now I say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. They hate us, ultimately, hate us because they hate the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you know, are you ready for this? Do you know what it means to carry your cross? Do you know what it means? People all over the world are learning what it means. All over the world, and it's going to be here. We are not exempt. It's going to come here. No matter when the rapture happens, we're still going to face it. It's going to come here. I, I saw, brought to mind when I was preparing this, uh, a story that I read in uh, Martyrs of the Middle East. And it, it was called The Meaning of the Cross. And it was back uh, 1915, under the guise of World War I, the uh, Armenia was being uh, uh, oppressed by the Turkish Muslim government. This hasn't this whole thing that we're seeing today didn't just start. It's been going on for a long, long time. Okay, and listen, as, as many as uh, on that year, April 24th, as many as 600,000 people were massacred by that Turkish government, killing the Armenians who call it Memorial Day to this day. Uh, they, they. Uh, they, they, it's just horrible what they did. Thousands of children were pushed alive into ditches and covered with dirt and sand. Many more Armenians were stoned or hacked to death. Some had their jaws ripped apart. Women and girls, some as young as 12, were stripped naked and raped before being slaughtered. Some persons were branded, on and on. But a, a, some, just a few made it out. They escaped into the Russia-controlled Armenia where there were American relief 
team set up to, to, to take these people in. And one of those who escaped was a young girl of 18 who stumbled into the American camp. The nurse said, are you in pain? She said, no, but I have learned the meaning of the cross. The nurse thought she was delusional or starving to death or lost her mind. And she said, what, what? she just kept, she was, thought she was mentally disorientated. It said, she questioned her further and that's all she would say. I've learned the meaning of the cross. So she finally gave up trying to talk to her and she started taking her garment off to get her cleaned up and give her some new clothes. And when she pulled down her garment on her shoulder, she saw a cross burn very deeply into her, her shoulder. Very deeply. It was a figure of a cross. And she, the girl said, she goes, what happened? She says, I was caught with the others in the village. I'm just going to read it. The Turks stood me up and asked, Muhammad or Christ? I said, Christ, always Christ. For seven days, they asked me the same question. And each day when I said Christ, a part of the cross was burned into my shoulder. On the seventh day, they said, tomorrow, if you say Muhammad, you live. If you say not Muhammad, then you die. Then we heard the Americans were near and some of us escaped. But she said, but this is how I learned the meaning of the cross. Are we ready to carry the cross? We have a lot easier time right now in the United States. This is the time to carry it out into our culture, isn't it? Into our friends, into our workplaces, into our schools, into our colleges, into our neighborhoods, into, into the homes of hurting people that are desperately seeking for an answer to life. Have you ever come to the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you ever come to the cross, to the altar? If you do... If you're ready to do it, it must be in faith. It must be with empty hands, with no human effort, with knowing you don't deserve anything. It's all by faith. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Are you ready to come to the cross by faith? That is the first step to a changed life. Let's pray. I want to talk to those as we're praying here. First of all, that when I asked the question, what would you say to God, you weren't sure what to say. Anyone who answered any other way than I put my faith in Jesus, I want to talk to you. Because today could be the day that you are saved, that you are born again, that you come to the cross by faith and have a brand new life that starts this second and goes out into all of eternity. Are you ready to put your faith in the ultimate sacrifice? Are you ready to put your faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross in our place for our sin to make us one with God again. And he proved it by coming back to life, which we'll see next week. We're going to focus on that next week. He proved it. Are you ready to put your faith in Jesus? There's nothing you can do There's nothing you can earn. It's a simple prayer of faith.
I put my faith in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for me, for my sin. And I turn away from that old life of sin. I walk away from that. And I'm going to follow Jesus now. If you have prayed that prayer of faith someday when you stand before God and he will ask you, why should I let you in? Now you will know. You will with confidence be able to say, because I put my faith in Jesus. Your son. If you've taken that step of faith, if you've prayed that prayer of faith today, I want to encourage you to let somebody know. Maybe you're here with a family member or a friend. Maybe you tell me on the way out. Maybe you fill the card out and stick it in the bulletin or in the box in the back. You know, the card from the bulletin, stick it in the box in the back. Whatever. Let somebody know today because we're going to be so excited and, and, and be able to encourage you in your new life in Christ. You now have eternal life and it starts this second. A brand new life starts this decade and goes on forever with God someday. For the rest of us who have put our faith in Christ, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to us? Are we willing to carry our cross wherever God calls us? To whomever God calls us to? Whenever he calls us. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would take your word with conviction. That the cross would be burned into our hearts in a powerful way. That people couldn't miss it. No one would be able to miss the cross that's burned into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.